Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. So welcome everyone uh, to, I was going to say this evening, this afternoon's hybrid event um, as part of the LSE Festival. So my name is Peter Trubowitz. I'm a professor in the International Relations Department uh, here at the school and the director of the um, Fallon United States Center. So when we were approached by the festival way back when um, to submit a proposal for this year's festival, we thought uh, this year's theme, uh, People in Change, would be a really terrific opportunity to try to get um, uh, Robert Sampson over to London to talk about his uh, innovative uh, research on uh, crime and punishment uh, in America, and fortunately he agreed. Um, so Rob is the uh, Woodward and Ann Flowers University professor at uh, Harvard University. He has published widely on crime, uh, urban inequality, and uh, the social organization of cities. Uh, including three award-winning books and numerous peer-reviewed articles. Uh, he's the winner of the Stockholm Prize in Criminology in 2011, an elected member of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences, a fellow in the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and the American Philosophical Society, and a corresponding fellow uh, at the British Academy. And before joining Harvard, he was based um, uh, I don't know, maybe like for a decade at, um, at the University of uh, Chicago, where he directed the project on uh, human development in Chicago uh, neighborhoods, um, which created a, um, a, a huge multi-cohort longitudinal data set that he's going to be showcasing today when he talks about his research. So welcome, Rob. It's great to have you here. Um, we're also very fortunate to have Nikki Lacey here as our discussant. Nikki is a school professor of law, gender, and social policy um, at LSE, an associate of the uh, International uh, Inequalities um, Institute and also the Fallon U.S. Center. She's written extensively on um, criminal law and criminal justice, um, in particular from kind of comparative and historical uh, perspectives. Her most recent book analyzes the development of uh, ideas of criminal responsibility in England since the uh, 18th century. She's an honorary fellow of New College and University College at Oxford. She's a fellow of the British Academy and a member of the Board of Trustees of the British Museum. Nikki, great to have you here as well. So here's the game plan. Rob is going to get us started with about 25 minutes of uh, a lecture. It's kind of, uh, he's going to condense a number of articles into 25 minutes and then, 25, 30 minutes. And then, um, and then Nikki is going to offer about, you know, 10 minutes or so of um, uh, comments uh, and reflections on, um, on Rob's work and uh, Rob's project. And then what we'll do is we'll open it to the floor, both online uh, and uh, in person here. And I think the, the request for those of you who are watching this online is just to, when you look for the Q&A function and you send in your question, please also provide your um, name and affiliation. 
And then for those of you who want to ask a question in the room, uh, the ushers will uh, come around with a microphone and do the same thing, provide a name and, a, and an affiliation. That way the LSE Festival has a great record of all the, how uh, disparate and diverse the participation is. Um, I think that's it. Um, you know, if you've got a cell phone, everybody's got a cell phone, just please put it on silent because this is being recorded. Um, and with that, please give our speakers a warm welcome. Thank you, Peter. 25 minutes. <laughs> it's a real pleasure to be here at LSE. London's one of my favorite cities, so any chance I get to visit, I usually do. And this seemed a special occasion, uh, given, as Peter said, the, the theme of the festival in terms of people and change. And I'm kind of obsessed with social change at the moment. And I'll try to walk you through some of the work that I've been doing, which is um, really going to be a, a book, but I've also written several articles. And, and so I will give you an idea uh, of all that work. And maybe one way to think about it is to say it's a social change challenge. That's really how I think about it. It's useful to think for a moment about how we typically go about research on the life course and individual change. And that is, as noted here, it's a simple fact, right? As time goes on, people change, growing up, entering new life phases. A lot of developmental research is carried out exactly like this, to study individuals and in how they change. But another fundamental fact, obvious in retrospect, is that synchronously, societies themselves are changing. Individuals are changing as societies are changing and moving through time. And therefore, people are facing different histories at the same age as other cohorts. That's actually profound, because what it means is that the aging is then confounded with social change. And the social change can be of any sort. I will submit um, that changes in crime and punishment are huge. I think they're huge in many other aspects, which I I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about. But crime and punishment in the US, different levels is the same in some other countries, including the UK. But we saw a massive rise in violence in the 1970s into 1980. Incarceration was relatively flat, so you had a, an interesting era there. And then the spike in incarceration continuing rise in violence, hitting a peak in around 1992-93 in the United States. Then it kind of falls off, incarceration plateaus, and you can see there's kind of a new equilibrium. These are rates per 100,000, so they're the same. That is to say the incarceration and, and the violent crime rate, but still much higher than before. That's a bit of a puzzle to try to figure out what is it like aging through these different dimensions. Let me give you a qualitative feel, and I'll give you some empirical facts that will back this up from the first chapter of the book. By the usual metrics, Darnell Jackson was high risk right out of the starting gate. Born in 1995 to a single mother in the deeply impoverished and racially segregated neighborhood of West Englewood on the south side of Chicago, incarceration was nearing its 20th century peak. And the murder rate had crested to explosive highs leading up to his birth. But Darnell was unexpectedly lucky 
in crucial respects. The year he was born, violence began a rapid descent that would continue through his childhood and later coming of age, not just in the South Side, but nearly everywhere. Toxic environmental exposures in terms of lead contamination, a known cause of impaired child development, declined even faster than violence. Arrests for many crimes started to plummet as well. When Darnell reached his mid-20s, the prime age for first entry to prison, again, a plummeting. Andre Lewis was likewise born into poverty and raised by a single mother in the very same West Englewood neighborhood. But in 1995, he was 15 and less graced by history. Early adolescence is a turbulent time for any boy. But unlike Darnell, Andre experienced it during historically high rates of violence in Chicago. As a child, he lived through the crack cocaine epidemic of the late 1980s, the rise of gang violence, and the rapid ascent of mass incarceration. The Englewood area was also a hotspot of lead contamination in his early years, what I think of as a silent epidemic. The legacy of violence and the intense policing of drugs and disorder remained widespread when Andre was transitioning to adulthood just a few years later. Like Darnell and Andre, we do not choose our times or how they will change. Although this fact might seem obvious in hindsight, the unrelenting and unpredictable flow of societal change remains a setting rather than an active driving force in leading ideas about the course of individual lives. Influential perspectives on human development focus instead on who we are as individuals, it's important, and the personal or family qualities that help us navigate life's twists and turns. But social change is still in the background. Long-term research linking individual characteristics to consequential life outcomes, like criminal behavior and punishment, health and other things, is dominated by the studies of children growing up in the same historical eras. Individual and social change are fused. The ancient philosopher Heraclitus pondered this puzzle of change circa 500 BC with his great aphorism that no man ever steps into the same river twice. For it's not the same river, and he's not the same man. My project and book in progress tackles this long-standing challenge of disentangling individual and social change, telling the story of Darnell and Andre, but also a thousand other children who grew up during different times of the remarkable transformation of crime and punishment. By following children from multiple birth cohorts over a quarter of a century into early and mid-adulthood while simultaneously mining rich information on childhood, we can unpack, I argue, the workings of social change. In the strong form, I argue that when we are makes us who we are. So how do I do this? It's a project in human development in Chicago neighborhoods, as Peter mentioned. Just to give you a quick view, now I'm going to get into some numbers and design, but it's essential to the work. It's a sequential cohort design. And what you can see here is that an infant cohort literally enrolled babies, mothers when they were pregnant or just after the baby had been born, about six months of age on average. This was in 1995 when we started the project in Chicago. And they've been followed for 25 years, including these various developmental phases. At the same time, we enrolled adolescent cohorts. 
who in 1995 were already either ages 9, 12, or 15. So you have, think of it as the younger cohort, and these were the older cohorts. You can see across the top, I've talked about some of the transitions, crime decline, policing, but there's other things, obviously the pandemic. We can fill in your, you know, your favorite social change up here, and people are experiencing them at different ages, which is the key. But what I can do then is exactly align what it's like to be 15 to your same developmental age. And what I'm going to argue is I can compare the same person equated in all individual characteristics and net out these societal effects. So one, part one, I'm going to talk about criminalization. In this case, arrest, which is a mark which has lasting consequences for the life course. And we did criminal history checks over the entire time from when the kids grew up until um, the end of uh, 2020. There's an article in the American Journal of Sociology and another more theoretical article based on this in Crime and Justice. Happy to send these to anyone that are available. Here's what it looks like, age in the developmental course of arrest. And like other research, I find that, and as every parent knows, teenagers are trouble. They're much more likely to get in trouble with the law around late teens and early 20s, what we call the age crime curve, the age arrest curve. But what's notable here, and I'm putting years or history on these now, you can see that the older cohorts are not only higher arrest rates, but they're coming into these in different eras by design. And this younger cohort is massively advantaged. The rate of arrest is about 100% higher for the older cohort, which is huge. But you can already think about competing hypotheses. Different cohorts, they have different demographic composition. They have differential exposure to poverty early in childhood. In the US, we heard about the super predators, different propensities to crime of a new generation. Very common hypothesis. Family structure, I mentioned lead exposure. These can all differ by cohort, and they do. As you can see in this chart, very simple, it just shows the mean level of exposure to key risk factors in childhood, that is say up to about age nine, before the onset of criminal arrest. Significant differences. Parents of the older cohort more likely to be arrested. Higher poverty, higher lead exposure, higher murder rates in childhood and adolescence. Weapon rates, you name it. So yes, there's demographic differences. However, adjusting for that, this is what we see. Slight diminution of the differences, but still very strong. So in other words, what I'm arguing, and hopefully you can see it visually, is that these red lines are, in a sense, capturing the effects of social change. We often hear about, well, individual characteristics matter, and I agree with that, of course. On the other hand, we can think about individual characteristics and propensity somewhat differently, at least I propose. Here's a graph of one of the most famous individual risk factors in criminology anyway, which is self-control. I can talk about measurement later, but this is a standard measure of self-control, and what we can see is that High self-control kids have higher arrest rates in both cohorts than low self-control kids. So you could say, well, that hypothesis is confirmed 
I'm asking you to just think a little bit differently about it in this respect. When you just trace it across, it kind of flips the way I think about it in any way, in that the high self-control kids of one cult or, <clears throat> or generation are essentially rendered equivalent to the low self-control kids of the next. In other words, there's no difference here, yet they're flipped on their levels of self-control. So which way do we want to think about it? I think about it, this changes the meaning, I think, of the individual risk factors. In a sense, the meaning can't be understood really absent the context. Now, you're probably asking yourself, what accounts for this broader social change? And that is a big question. I could talk for another hour in two minutes. I'm going to tell you that it's about 50% institutional change in terms of policing practices and about 50% in terms of behavioral change in society with regard to violence. Within our data, one thing we can do is assess the drug war hypothesis, at least in the US, Policing of drugs went up massively. <clears throat> and the argument was that this was really a, a policing change, not really a behavioral change. And one way you can test that is to look at differences among our cohorts in terms of just drug arrests. And you can see there's still a huge difference. But when we look at all other arrests, and by the way, we did it for violence, we did it for property crimes, we still see a strong differential. So it's not just drug arrests, although drug arrests matter. Another hypothesis. Well, what about drug use? Let's just probe this drug hypothesis a little bit more. Maybe it's just because use was plummeting. But turns out, whether it's Chicago, these are based on surveys outside of our study, and national use of marijuana Pretty flat, national rate was flat. I mean, no one's probably surprised, right? If you did alcohol use, kids have always, <clears throat> two parents chagrined. <laughs> uh, drinking, drug use, I could put other drugs up here, it just messes up the chart. Basically, it's relatively flat. These are drug arrests, plummeting. It's shocking, actually, that there was relatively straight line all the way till about 2000, five to about 2007, and then they plummeted. These are all normalized, by the way, to 1995, so you can think of it as the percentage change or relative to 95. So basically over a 75% drop, huge, massive drop, all of a sudden. Social change can be abrupt. In this case, had nothing to do with use. What about broken style, uh, broken window style policing? You may have heard that phrase. This is the idea of very aggressive policing of disorder type arrests. In New York City, this became famous under Mayor Giuliani. Crackdown on things like public drinking, graffiti scrawling, squeegee men in the streets, just any kind of disorderly conduct. What we can see is that these changes that are occurring in terms of arrests are plummeting the size of the police department, which is another hypothesis that we were just more actively hiring officers and being, you know, as part of the broken windows hypothesis, more officers, more arrests. Well, what's happening is no real change, a little spike here and then back down. Almost shockingly, in 2021, the same 
level is uh, way back in 1995, so that can't explain it. But look at the arrests, just plummeting. In fact, almost no one in Chicago today is arrested for disorderly conduct. This goes against the common grain of thought that during the era of mass incarceration, there's been sort of this increase, linear increase in the punitive state. It's true, if we focus on 1980 to 1995, massive rise in drug arrests, massive rise in disorderly rates, but in the period basically of what this last quarter century, it's one that's not what we often hear about, and it's one of great change. What about societal trends and violence? Well, one way to look at that is two things. It's reports by citizens now. Citizen reports to the police of violent offenses, often considered a good indicator of trends in violence itself. This is graphed against violent arrests, that is, arrests for violent crimes. And what you can see is they both follow the same pattern. Suggests that arrests are tracking actual behaviors. And again, this didn't follow, obviously, for drugs and some of the other things, but it does for violence, which gets us back to, and there's more that can be said, and I have a lot I could say about, okay, then what's driving violent behavior and societal changes, but just thinking in what's most proximate to the arrest process in terms of changes, it's about 50% of the institutional policing change and overall violence changing. But, and this is part two, Again, social change is always surprising us. The great American crime decline, we keep thinking it's going down. Something happened in the US, anyway, starting around 2010. All of a sudden, we started seeing increases in gun purchases, and then in around 2018, really skyrocketed. Guns in the home, Americans, you know, it's always had high rates of ownership, but the rate of gun purchasing went up. But more than that, this really has affected the life course of our children. And what I've done now is to re-graph, in a way, the design of the different cohorts and when they came of age, in this case, teenagers, against the homicide rate and the firearm homicide rate. And again, we have this notion of decline in violence. It's true, but look what happened. Starting in about 2005, it just stopped. And then shot up to the point where the firearm homicide rate in Chicago is now highest than it's ever been, in historic high. <laughs> Which is quite remarkable, I think, given some of the ideas put forth on the crime decline. It's just not true when it comes to violence. But what it also means is our favored cohort, that is to say, that was the least arrested and therefore was advantaged in terms of the life course because of that, was turning 20, more or less, as the firearm homicide started to shoot up. So a kind of countervailing change, even though the arrest rate was going down. I think of this as shifting cohort fates. We published a paper in, in JAMA Network Open on this and showed profound differences, but also non-differences, surprisingly, for this kind of cohort comparison. And I'll show you a few um, slides here. Hopefully they'll be interpretable, but uh, these are just cumulative exposures. So just the cumulative exposure over the life course. And what you can see in this first one in terms of 
been shot, and these are now reports of our kids themselves of whether they have been shot, so gun, direct gun victimization. At around 20 years of age, that younger cohort and the older cohort are very similar. And then when you continue to follow them out, it's actually 1987 cohort, which if you recall that previous graph, they were in that plateau. They were coming of age around 18 in that plateau when that's the age of uh, being shot is around, the average age is around 17, 18. They lucked out. And the birth cohort of 1995 and the oldest cohort, there's no statistically significant difference. So that advantage has been wiped out. There is still a difference, however, in scene shot. These are scary numbers in a way. The older cohort, around 50% had actually witnessed someone being shot because that tends to occur at a younger age. So again, you have to think about the life course, I would argue, in conjunction with societal change. If you're witnessing violence, the average age is 13 and 14. That means that cohort, which had come up through the violence epidemic, is really disadvantaged. So violence matters. It's just in a different way, given societal changes. Carrying and using a gun, current work in progress. We're seeing continued cohort effects here that look more like arrests, although there's some differentiation here that we didn't see in the arrest curves. I think the thing I would want to impress upon you here, though, is the great disadvantage that that older cohort experienced. OK, that's, I talked about part one, criminal justice system experiences. Part two, violence. Now I want to talk a little bit about the idea of prediction and some policy, and then I'll end. And still keeping within the 25-minute goal, which is <laughs> remarkable. Prediction is everywhere in society. It's not just criminal justice system. Our phones track us. They're selling us things, advertisers, of course. And it's just endemic, I think, but becoming increasingly so, the algorithmic society. In criminal justice, there's a long history of prediction. But typically what happens is we use, or at least what we call in this paper that just came out, some classic risk factors, prior record, being arrested, growing up in poverty, maybe living in a single family home, been tons of risk assessment interests, so-called RAIs, that use these features. And so our goal was to step back and say, we know that there's different kinds of biases. A lot has been written about racial bias, for example, because prior record, if there's any kind of bias and arrest, that will be baked into the prior record. We're asking a different question. What if these societal changes are contaminating the risk instruments and how much? This I'm not going to get into in a lot of detail, but for those of you who do this kind of research, will recognize this is a calibration plot we took the older cohort, we applied all the different characteristics, we used the best methods that we could, machine learning, which in a full model takes all the characteristics we can measure into account. And the black line, sort of the line that connects the, the corners here would be a perfect prediction. And indeed on the older cohort, the average prediction, this is along the x-axis, is the predicted probability of arrest, so a 50% predicted probability. The red line is the average probability of those arrested. And you can see these lines match up, which means we've calibrated, we've done a good job in 
the prediction based on this older cohort. What happens when we do the younger cohort? A big drop. This is the actual probability and how it compares to the actual probability of the older cohort. This is actually quite significant in terms of the difference. And it's below, and so what it means is we're over-predicting this younger cohort based on the experiences that are there for the older cohort, but that makes sense, right? Because concurrent risk prediction instruments have to be based, or usually are based, on the past, but you're using it to predict the future. And so to the, to the extent that a risk prediction decision, whether it's get bail, go to prison, risk of future arrest, it's what we call cohort bias. We are really disadvantaging current kids. And you could say, well, let's just build the change in the crime rate into the instruments. Turns out, by the way, that these are not updated very often, 20 years in some cases. In leading criminal justice agencies, they're using information from 20 years ago, which means current kids are being predicted into these different, whether it's treatments or criminal justice activities, based on faulty information. It's an error. And this difference, in some cases, is up to 90%. So we're not talking about a trivial difference. We're talking about a large, substantial error. Well, you might say, okay, it's just a level difference. Crime is declining. No. It's true, but it's not only that. Poverty, race, family structure, immigrant generation, the predictive nature of each of these is also changing, which means then that it's not just a level difference. So if you're a machine learning person out there, you can't just do a fancy intercept shift model or something like that. You have to recognize that the predictors are changing, which makes it that much tougher. The bottom line, social change degrades prediction accuracy. I think this has important implications for policy, but also, I think, theory. And that's how, how I would like to conclude um, with a few observations. And then we can turn it over to Nikki. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ ask social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. So the birth lottery of history, I think the main argument here and of the book is when we are, not who we are. Now, I don't mean that's obviously the strong argument. It doesn't mean who we are, individual characters, because it don't matter. It just means the following. One, short-term history really matters. My colleague Orlando Patterson says, well, we have great arguments. He's like, well, I think in terms of centuries. <laughs> I was like, yes, it's important. But you can see, or hopefully you have seen, the power of short-term and often paradoxical and countervailing changes. The idea of Linear arguments, declensionist narratives, I mean, this dominates our thinking, right? The world's going to hell or it's getting better. They're both wrong. Traditional childhood factors, risk factors, do not account for the cohort inequalities I've told you about. It doesn't mean they're important. They explain individual differences. They can't explain the cohort inequalities. Moreover, they often interact. What I didn't show you was, for example, social class, poverty, and I mentioned it, it's changing. The gap between the poor and the non-poor in terms of being arrested has been declining 
over time. That's another one of our findings. So the impact of risk factors is conditional on history. Final three points. What are the policy implications? One, I think we need, and that's what I'm writing about, is a reconceptualization of risk and propensity. But propensity is really what I think drives our ideas of risk. Like we, we tend to think of propensities as fixed and that they're part of people. Maybe, in part. But you can also see that there's, in a sense, a societal level of this. And this, by the way, is true on both the left and the right politically. We think we can predict nonviolent offenders or chronic offenders, but these are all shifting definitions. Risk prediction instruments, cohort bias, and algorithmic justice. It's independent of racial bias. I think it's a big problem that needs to be rectified. And fundamentally, in terms of theory, we're so fixated on individual character. I think what this really tells us is that we need to define character up as it that it's really social factors, social foundations of change that matter. Thank you. Well, that is great. Nikki, why don't we turn it over to you? Do you want to come up? Thanks so much, Rob. Um, when Peter mentioned to me the theme of this year's LSE Festival, I, you were the first person who came into my mind because I'd been reading this very rich theme of work that you've been working on for a little while and you could hardly think of a, a better topic for uh, the theme of this year's festival so we were absolutely delighted when you uh, uh, agreed to to come and i'd just like to really have a, give a plug to the papers you've mentioned um, because they're incredibly engaging and readable and one of the points you introduce i think in your um, uh, your paper with ash smith I don't know how many biography fans are in the room, but you, you make the point that if you read a biography that didn't say anything about the context in which somebody lived, you would think, what a ridiculous book, you know, absolutely crazy. But criminology, of course, historically has had what you've called a characterological bias. Its origins were in the idea that criminality resided in the individual. And of course, that has been massively revised with the development of sociology as an empirical discipline through the 20th century and into the 21st. And you've demonstrated to us just how far the sort of cutting edge sociological techniques uh, can take us to understand the nuance of the relationship between propensity, character and context, even to the point of uh, it becoming quite confusing where you draw that line. And that, it really can't be exaggerated how important the implications of that are. Not simply, I think, as you said, for policy, but also for the conceptual structure. Not just the criminology and criminological categories, how we think about crime and the causes of crime, the explanations of crime, but also for the law. I'm a lawyer by training, not a sort of classical social scientist. And, um, if we think about, for example, where responsibility for crime lies, um, this is a long-standing issue that's been debated in the law for hundreds of years. You know, if, if we know that somebody's context, somebody's circumstances, the pressure they were under for various reasons has uh, shaped their behaviour, then what does that say about pinning responsibility on them, particularly where those social factors might be under the sway of social policy. 
So I think that's the first point I really want to make, that this has implications for criminology and law as uh, categories, as conceptual categories, as well as social practices, particularly in a world, and you brought this out uh, very uh, strongly, so I won't labour the point, particularly in, a world, particularly in a world where the data sciences, the availability of big data and algorithms is giving a new spin to uh, risk assessment, to uh, the uh, mobilisation of propensity. Moreover, is doing so in ways that's very complicated to render transparent. The assumptions just brought, so sorry, get sort of embedded in the algorithm and then it can be very difficult to recover what those assumptions were. So I think that's all, all incredibly important. And I think we've seen, certainly in this country, a, a, a further, an accentuation, a sort of revival almost, of an emphasis on criminal character. I think it's a very complicated thing. And although you've done a marvellous job on doing the social science equivalent of the complete works of Shakespeare in 15 minutes, and I'm trying to do the, the commentary exchange in 10, but uh, we can't really go into it. But I think it has to do with a certain world of insecurity of sort of uh, you know risk focus uh, which of course has very complex uh, uh, um, origins um, i want to make one further point and then then sort of put a, put a couple of questions on the table the further point is that um, i think that this methodology that you have taken to such a high level has enormous implications beyond criminal justice and criminology um, we're living in a world where we're still very much in the shadow of the pandemic. We don't like to think about it too much because we all want to think it's over. But of course, the impact of the pandemic, as we all, those of us who work in universities are discovering, those of you who are now studying here will know, your lives have been hugely shaped by the pandemic. And that is going to be true for the generations to, you know, to come. And it seems to me incredibly important that the social sciences should be developing techniques to try to assess those impacts, because we will learn a huge amount uh, about it, as well as hopefully getting some ideas about how to change it. So this is a project about crime, but the upshot is much broader, I think. But let me just put a couple of questions on the table. Um, the first thing, and it, this is a bit mean, Rob, because actually um, you've taken out the slide that somewhat spoke to this uh, in your effort to do the complete works of Shakespeare in, in 15 minutes. But I'd like to press you a little bit more on the sort of big picture hypothesis. What, how do you really explain this? What do you think is going on? It's such a remarkable, you know, findings in the social sciences don't come much more spectacular than this, really, do they? What do you really think changes it? You, you raise some some scepticism in, in the slide that has disappeared about whether it is sort of structural economic factors, unemployment, poverty, and so on. But I'd like to press you a little bit more on that because, um, so I'm party pre, I should immediately uh, uh, confess to those of you who don't know my work, but I've done some work with David Soskis, who's here, on sort of the relationship, potential relationship between technology, regime change, and crime and punishment. And um, I do wonder whether we can be sure from this data, insofar as I've seen it, that that isn't a big part of this story. So related to that, and my second point, I would like to ask something about 
how far this is about Chicago or is it about the US? And the reason I ask that is there isn't much in this. I mean, there's a huge amount of granular demographic distinction in the way the cohorts are, uh, you know, compared. But there isn't that much about, for example, how the demographics of Chicago have changed during this time um, and may have changed back somewhat since COVID. And so if you were to look at Baltimore or Detroit or one of the cities that hasn't benefited yet from the growth of the knowledge economy, from new technologies, from the growth of from urban regeneration, what would we see? Well, we, we know that crime has stayed higher there, that uh, punishment has stayed higher there, but what, what would we see? So those are the questions I'd like to put on the table, but thank you so much for a wonderful talk and a wonderful project. Rob, you want to take a minute? Sure, I'll just take a short time. Yeah, and then we'll open it up. Thank you. Thank you for those comments. Just a couple reactions. One, I do think the implications cut across a number of domains, the upshot that you mentioned. I'm glad you you noted the pandemic. It's, It's obviously a big change. But one thing I, I recently read, some interesting research suggesting that the kids that were coming of age during the pandemic, um, my kids were out of school there. <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't hate to have been a parent during the pandemic, but for one thing, we know that kids lost a year of schooling, if not more, and the nature of education changed. So I think there's gonna be profound effects of that. But it also struck me that some of the research is suggesting that personalities changed too, because of sort of the formation and how you think about the world in terms of stability and security, but also the social isolation that the pandemic rendered. Really, fundamentally, this is not definitive work. I think it's just coming out it's so recent. Changed people's personalities, and that sort of was hit me because it was like, yeah, I mean, it's not just arrest, it's not just violence, and depending on the social change. And when we think of personality, in psychology, there's usually the reference to the big five, right? Different kinds of characteristics, introversion, extroversion, and all these different things. And you kind of map those out and you think, my God, yes, why wouldn't those have been affected by the pandemic for those that were of a vulnerable age? And I, I say that as an example because it's, I think drives home the point of it's not just the change, it's the change in interaction with the individual life course at a specific age. So I'm not arguing, just be clear, against these individuals. It's really the need to look at intra-cohort trajectories in combination with inter-cohort or with social change. So that's arguing. I think the pandemic is a great example, and we're going to continue to see further work, and we're in fact looking at this too, because that's a, a clear event that happened. Um, quickly take your last point, and I'll go back to different kinds of social changes in terms of, I'll we'll call it the Baltimore question, which is a good question. And people often ask me, like, well, yeah, what about other cities? And I say, I wish I had the energy, the money, the multiple lives to do these studies elsewhere. It's really hard to do an intensive longitudinal study in multiple places. 
That said, I think the general point will hold because, let's say in Baltimore or Detroit or some of these other places, the levels of violence are different than Chicago, but the same pattern actually obtained, that is to say, from extremely high rates, much higher than Chicago. And by the way, some of the news media on the exposure to violence paper, I think misread the findings I had to say, Chicago is not even in the top 20 of large cities and rates of violence. That's just a fact. There are other cities that are higher. But the basic pattern is held, that is, violence plummeted, even in places like Detroit. Not to the same level. But, yeah, I think we need to know more about those places. I would also point out a fact in the study that I didn't get to mention, which is these were children of Chicago at the time, but we followed them wherever they moved throughout the United States, indeed the world. Some moved, there were immigrants from back to Mexico, people moved to Texas, New York, Los Angeles, and so forth. Most stayed in the state of Illinois. I don't know the exact figure off the top of my head, I think it's around 50, 60% remain in Chicago. So it's a considerable dispersion outwards. So it's not just, and I think it's important to state, it's not a selection factor that we're just looking at people who say this is really the trajectories of, of kids no matter where they moved. Now, on the other factors, and I'm working through this more now, and I think it's a fascinating question. I'll start out by saying, again, that the unit of analysis is not the society, it's the interaction, but one needs to look at it, and that's why I put up those charts. We're limited by the fact that it is a relatively short period of history. It's what makes it so interesting when you see these different changes. But if you think about it, the number of data points is 20, 25, if you're mm -hmm. talking about a quarter century or more or less. So you can't really, it's difficult, let's say, to, to ferret out the one cause. But I would push back on the, and I know that's not what you're saying. I don't think there is one cause. In the social sciences, we often hear about the differences or philosophy of science between studying the effect of a cause, a single cause, you do an experiment, you study the effect, or the causes of effects, as philosophers of science often put it. This is a causes of effects kind of question, that is to say, it's like working backwards, right? You've got an outcome or change in history, you're trying to figure out what caused it. You can't do an experiment, you can't run it backwards. But theoretically, I don't think there's any one cause. So I think it's more in the spirit of a generative model. And what we can do, what I tried to do and show you was work through observable implications. If it was drug use, you should be able to see from multiple sources changing patterns of drug use in a particular direction. We don't see that, so we can rule that out. You can go through a number of things. You mentioned economics. It is the go-to explanation often, and concentrated poverty is a strong predictor and correlate, and I think in many ways a cause of violence, at least in the United States. However, in terms of arrest anyway, and in terms of um, some other features, it can't explain it, at least at the societal change level. Mm. Does it at the individual level? I did take it out because I only had 25 minutes, but <laughs> yeah. 
If you look at unemployment rates, and I have the slide, I'll send it to anybody. I look at um, economic conditions in the United States. It's kind of like jumps around like this or it's flat. In other words, the older cohort, when they were young or turning of age, were experiencing generally roughly the same economic conditions in society as the younger cohort. So can't really explain. Another thing we did, which wasn't in the slide, since we did follow people, we know every single year, it's a lot of work, but to find out where they lived, and then we matched it to census data on the poverty rates of the neighborhoods in which they were living. So we could look at the trajectories of exposure to poverty. And the story is basically there, unfortunately, stable racial inequality, which means over time, Whites were living in advantaged neighborhoods, and blacks were moving more, there's more heterogeneity, but were much more disadvantaged. And the older cohort was slightly more advantaged, but it really can't explain it. And we also control for those features in childhood. So I don't really think it is economics. I do think you're onto something with technology, because we know, um, when you think about it, the younger cohort is like, let's call it the first iPhone generation. So they're being tracked and surveilled, whereas the older cohort, they were sort of part of the internet generation. We started using the internet, as I recall, <laughs> about mid-90s, which is when they were turning 15. So I think there's something there, although it's a little counterintuitive, right? Because technology, I think, since it's more advanced, many have argued that crimes are easier to solve. Much more surveillance, videos are capturing police killings, or Security cameras, you can see it here in London, right? Cameras are out there on the streets, videotaping. So um, that would mean the probability of arrest is going up. The other cohort is plummeting, right? So on the other hand, parents know where their kids are more, so they're supervised more because of iPhone. So I think technology is part of it, um, but it's not a clear story, I think, is all I would say. And I could talk more about other things, but. I, Probably want to get questions. Let's try to get a few questions in. Do we have uh, any questions in the room? Because um, if not, I'm going to, I have one. <laughs> um, anybody? Chris, do we have anybody online? We do. Yeah. So just to say that we actually have 50 people online, and there are folks from the uh, from the UK, the US, Canada, France, Germany, Hong Kong, India, Italy, Mexico, Spain, and Uganda. So uh, one question that comes from online is from Farad Rajan Gaya, prospective students, the president studying in Mumbai, Maharashtra, India. The question is, for capita, there were 14.6 gun deaths per 100,000 people in the US in 2021, highest recorded since the early 1990s. What would be the causes of this other than the problems when people suffer during the pandemic? Could poverty and unemployment be another? Thank you. Did I see a hand over here? No. no. Um, um, are there boys and girls, or the young men and women in, in the cohort? And so, uh, what are the differences by gender? I'd be interested to know. Gender. Gender. Okay, go ahead. Kathy. Great. Um, but thank you for the talk. It just seems like there's so many different levels or layers to what you presented. So, toward the end, you you emphasize the implications that have to do with prediction and algorithmic justice. So we got that. And then you also kind of drew out this point about um, when we are, it's where we are, so like 
people are shaped or by the circumstances in which they grow. But you know, I was wondering if you were going to say something about like this substantive difference between these cohorts that you studied. So perhaps in terms of, you know, this would be very simple, like the implications for politics. So there are these generational theories of politics, like the Vietnam generation or the World War II generation, where you know, people say the way you, you know, obviously the way they see the world is shaped by when they, their formative years. Mm -hmm. But so you studied something very particular, these youth growing up in these difficult environments where they're you know, exposed to the threat of violence and the threat of arrest. But I just wonder if, if you are interested in also saying something substantive about these generations and, and what these people's lives are and how they how that shapes who they are in, in other respects. Great. So should I take all three then? Just take all three. And, and Nikki, feel free to jump in. Yeah, because you yes. yeah. have got thoughts on this too. So, not a question. Thank you for that. Um, guns, yes. Unfortunately, the U.S. suffers an incredible gun problem, unlike many other countries. I think, in large part, that's a policy choice in the sense of unfettered availability of weapons. The rise in firearm homicide in the about 2015 or so, 2016, Yes, it went up during the pandemic, but that predates the pandemic. So something was happening. And it's not entirely clear, but in the US, there was a lot of disruption, social unrest, not just around the pandemic, but before that in terms of policing crises. So you probably are all familiar with Ferguson, which happened in 2015-ish. And um, there was a sh shooting around the same time of a man named Laquan McDonald, and the police killed him on the street. And there was a video of it that the mayoral administration at the time suppressed. And when it became public, it led to a lot of unrest and there was looting. And I think a lot of disruption in a sort of classic sociological sense of the, the norms of order were um, seen, anyway, as being undermined. And before that, again, this is somewhat anecdotal, but there was some evidence that gun purchases anyway, not firearm homicides, went up after Obama was elected. So there, argument there's a racial dimension to this where uh, people were buying more guns, although it does appear that across all races, at least later on, it was, it was the case. I don't think it's a simple racial story, but I think it is a story of perceived security risk and then in the pandemic, you know, when everything went to hell and, and people were buying guns like crazy. But remember, um, it wasn't just that. Here's another social change that I think is somewhat fascinating because in ways it is related to violence. Documented very large increases in road rage, road rage in the US, including killings. So violence, stranger to stranger violence, which heretofore had been relatively rare, all of a sudden skyrocketed. So this sense in which confrontations were more likely to eventuate in death or shootings than before, you know, you just flip somebody to bird, that's what I did <laughs> growing up driving. Now I don't do that anymore. <laughs> Someone could very well shoot me. So, um, but policy 
you know, it is an issue here because in the U.S. in particular states, they're making it easier to buy guns. Not even just simple things like background checks and registration. So I don't think that's a political point. I think it's just a realistic point that guns and gun policy have a lot to do with it. So I think it's an important question. But I think the spirit of that question was it's not, it wasn't just the pandemic. The pandemic exacerbated a pre-existing gun culture in a way in the United States. Gender, it's, it's a great question. So particularly in the violence, social violence paper, uh, we were heavily focused on that because of the great differentials, but it's also true in arrest. I mean, men are the ones that are getting arrested. <laughs> men are not good actors, let me put it that way. Um, and the interesting thing I think I can say in general is that there's not really an interaction between gender and these characteristics. In other words, there's a there's a differential that exists, but this is sort of being mapped on to both in similar ways. So that's why I didn't focus in on a lot. Like I mentioned, social class is changing over time in its relationship. Whereas it's not really the case for the most part with respect to gender. The one anomaly I think I mentioned is that women are, were surprisingly to us, much more exposed to witnessing violence than we had expected which suggests the importance of non-fatal violence and the, the witnessing of general violence in society. And what I mean by that is the gap between men and women in witnessing violence is you know, like this, whereas be actually being shot like, <laughs> is really huge. But witnessing violence is serious and can be quite traumatic. So there are a lot of different findings about that. It's just that in the cohort analysis that we've been focused on, because of the lack of interaction for the most part. We haven't spent a lot of time with it. Last question, thank you for that too, on generations. Yeah, I've read, I love the generational stuff. Uh, for those of you um, who like work, historical, more historical work, Carl Mannheim's work on generations is, is fantastic stuff. He, and he talked about a sort of cultural argument, right, to, in terms of the Antilochies, where Generations, you know, work up what he called you know, a certain kind of way of perceiving and thinking about the world, which was collective in a way, in orientation. And I think that's an important point. And I think, though, there's been a lot written about generations. It tends, at least from where I sit, to be heavily cultural in terms of the ideas that generations see it. Gen X is this, and so on and so forth. I'm not a big believer in culture as a means of explaining the differences that I've observed for a couple of reasons. One, and if you've seen some of these changes, they're just too abrupt. Culture, to the extent it's meaningful, is more enduring, stable. It changes, of course, but I don't think these abrupt changes can be explained by generational culture. Moreover, and this is important, all these cohorts are basically the same generation. So it can't really be a generational argument, right? They're all millennials. The youngest cohort just hanging on the tail of the next so-called. But of course, generational divides are arbitrary. The birth cohort is, it's arbitrary how we want to um, place perhaps 
the different developmental age phases. But I think that generations are usually, you know, much more in the 20, 30 year bracket, right? Large exposures. And there's so much going on that differentiates these cohorts within the same generation that I just don't analytically believe that's the right way to think about it. Doesn't mean that there aren't generational effects on other things, it just means from my perspective that it, that it can't explain this. But it does raise the question of um, sort of the, the cultural dimensions to all this. And I do, I mean, I, I think there are important cultural features, although I, I think in, in this case it may be more an outcome of these cohort shifts. It's gonna create differences longer term in how people view the world in terms of cultural meanings. And it's sort of the classic Mannheimian sense of how you know, you're working up a particular understanding of the world, which is cultural in orientation. It's collective because it's a shared understanding. But it's, it's being imprinted, right? And it's, it's part of that social structure that's changing. So it's, in a sense, endogenous to those changes. At least analytically, that's, if I had to put my money down, I think that's where it would be as opposed to the, the different cultures of these generations are shaping what we're seeing. So I know it doesn't look like it, but we've actually hit the bewitching hour because uh, it's a hard stop at um, 7.30. Um, Rob, Nikki, thank you for just a terrific uh, discussion. Um, folks, there's a reception downstairs on the ground floor, so uh, everybody is cordially invited by LSE Festival. Um, please join me in, in thanking uh, Rob and Nikki. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.